Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. Today is book three, episode four. I am joined once again by the author of the book, Influence People, Brian Ahern. We are now halfway through the book and the episodes for your book. So how has this experience been for you thus far? I think it's been great. This is the most in-depth I've gone on the book with with anybody. So kudos to you for uh, the research that you're doing and the questions you're asking. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Now, I know you've been on many podcasts, and according to your website, uh, you've been a guest on 70 different episodes. Mm -hmm. With all that experience and with this experience, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? I did a little while ago, and I decided not to because in some sense, I felt like I'd be preaching to the choir. Um, Mm -hmm. This way, I'm traveling to different churches, different choirs, and uh, it gives me exposure. So uh, I I like to spend a lot of time writing. I'm actually working on my third book right now. So I don't know where I would squeeze it in. Oh, wow. All right. Well, then uh, we'll have to do book two, and then we'll have to do book three in the future. So, And uh, is book two coming out at the end of this year or sooner than that? Book two should be out by the end of the year. Book two differs a little bit from the book we're talking about in that it is a very hardcore sales book mm-hmm. and it's uh, specific to insurance agents. So it looks at the sales process and which okay. of these principles are most applicable at different points. Oh, very good. Oh, that's that's exciting. Can't wait to get my hands on that. So let me know when it's available uh, for order. All right. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Thursday, September 10th, 2020. And the next section of the book that we'll be discussing is business tips to impact the bottom line. And before we get into today's episode, just like we say each time, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes, hit pause, go download them, listen to them, and then come back to this episode. So let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. All right. So like I said, business tips to impact the bottom line is this uh, episode's topic. And you write that when it comes to the psychology of persuasion, the big disconnect is applying the theory. And this section of the book is why I love the book, because it provides practical, real world applications and how to handle certain situations. And within the book, you write about 16 different tips or situations that provide the loyal readers with how they can really leverage the science of influence to achieve better results. In this episode, we're going to be covering five of those. And for the remaining 11 loyal readers, you'll just need to go out and purchase the book to find uh, find out what they are. So again, we'll have that uh, link in the show notes so that you can go out and, and order that. All right. So the first one is 700,000 great reasons to use yellow sticky notes. And this can be found on page 43 of the book. Um, And you write, and by now the loyal reader should know this, that you spent most of your career with state auto insurance. And so this gave you the ability to see how influence and persuasion training worked in the real world. And you continue on by citing a book written by Cialdini, Goldstein, and Martin called Yes, 50 scientifically proven ways to be persuasive, where they cite two studies that used yellow sticky notes. And these yellow sticky notes were used to engage people and their willingness to take action. 
and in both studies, a yellow sticky note with a handwritten message was affixed to a survey cover letter, and the response rate more than doubled as compared to the one that did not have the sticky note. Now, in the study, the participants denied that they took the survey because of the sticky note and the short handwritten message. And so the question I have is, why did the sticky note work so well? Um, now, the answer that you write in the book is getting back to principle one, which is reciprocity, which we discussed in episode two. So I do have two questions, and you can answer them now, or if you want to, we can wait for after we discuss the story of the 700,000 great reasons. But the first is, why did the participants deny they took the survey because of the sticky note? And the second is, does it matter if that sticky note is actually handwritten, or can you print on it with something that looks like a handwriting? So do you want to take care of these questions now or wait until after the story? No, we can, we can do them now. Okay. Uh, why would most people deny that they would take the survey because of the sticky note? Uh, first, I'd say is because we're really unaware of what motivates our behavior. It's undeniable to look at the fact that when the survey was sent out with just a cover letter and then it was sent out with the same cover letter with a short handwritten note on that yellow sticky note, it more than doubled the response rate. In, in one of the, in one of the uh, studies, it, was, it went from 36 to 75 percent. In another one, it was, I believe, 34 to 69 percent. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think we're very unaware of what drives our behavior, and we'll just convince ourselves that, no, I, I looked at the survey cover letter, and I decided that I would take it. The reason that the sticky note works the way that it does is it does indicate that you've done a little bit more. Um, to my knowledge, there's no studies on with a green sticky note or a pink sticky note or with any of those, they just um, use that yellow sticky note. Mm -hmm. It kind of indicates that somebody took a little extra time to take that sticky note, put it on there and take a moment to write the handwritten note. Now, interestingly, Josh, when they used a handwritten note on the actual survey letter, Mm -hmm. It did increase the response rate. It went from 36 to 48%. So again, mm -hmm. it indicates that people notice it more. They, they tend to respond because somebody's done a little bit more. But that same handwritten note on the yellow sticky note um, caused an even greater response rate. So that's, you know, I, I look at something like that. And my thought then is, how can I use that? How could I use that to, to help myself or to help my organization? And I'll let you go on before we talk about the 700,000 great reasons. Yeah. Um, now, does it matter if it's actually handwritten or because there are companies out there that offer the ability, you handwrite everything out, they turn it into a font, and then you can use that. Do you think that people can really tell a difference? And does it make it better to do the handwritten or that you can use the handwritten font that's printed? Um, handwritten is, is always best. Okay. That's what indicates that you have done a little bit more. I think people are becoming a little jaded to the fact that they're seeing these yellow sticky notes more and more on different things. Mm -hmm. And I do remember the very first time I got one and I'm looking at it and I didn't recognize the handwriting and it was just initialed. And I'm like, Jay, who's Jay? And now I realize it was just um, produced by a company and, and affixed on there. And I think when people start to realize that, I think at that point, they're feeling manipulated, like, oh, somebody took this tip or this trick and they're trying yeah. to get me to respond. But let's say, Josh, you send something out to customers and maybe it's a letter that's explaining a change in certain policy or something. Um, if you 
personalize and put some kind of um, note on there that says like, you know, hey, Mrs. Smith, I hope you and Mr. Smith are doing well. And, and something like that on each of those notes, that's where people are gonna recognize Josh actually did this. And that's the kind of thing that makes them respond a little bit more. Okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. So let's get to the story about how you have 700,000 great reasons to use the yellow sticky notes. Okay. And since this is a story that involves you personally, would you mind telling the loyal readers about what happened sure. with this story. So with, with the backdrop of understanding about the studies, I had done some work with the accounting department in a prior year. They had a summit and this was one of the things I shared with them. The following year, um, we had made a mistake um, in terms of our accounting. Somebody mm -hmm. made an error that accidentally doubled the commission rates for uh, all of the agents in a particular state. It wasn't your state, Josh. And, um, and it was a $700,000 mistake where 150 agents were overpaid. So about half a dozen of us were called together early in January after Christmas break. We were told about the error and we had to devise a plan to get that money back as quickly as possible because towards the end of the month, then the company's going to be paying millions of dollars in bonus money. So it's pretty nice to have an extra 700 grand in the bank. Yes. Um, so as we devised our plan, we realized we were gonna have to send a physical letter to every one of the insurance agents, tell them how much they overpaid and ask them to please sit down and write a check. We were not going to be able to go into their bank account and automatically draft that money back out. So, I mean, imagine, you know, Josh, you're, you're an insurance agent. And for those who are listening, imagine you get this letter from the home office more than 500 miles away, the home office accounting manager, a guy you've probably never met or talked to, and he basically says, Josh, we overpaid your agency $8,000 last month. Please sit down as soon as possible and write us a check. That's <laughs> probably not going to the top of the priority list. In right. fact, you probably will prefer cold calls that day over writing the $8,000 check because once you have it, it feels like it's yours, even though you know it's an error. So we knew this was going to be difficult, but I turned to the home office accounting manager, Steve, and I said, Steve, remember what I shared last year about the sticky notes? And he said, yeah. And I said, if you don't have time to handwrite and put a sticky note on every one of those 150 letters, call me and I'll come do it. And then he remembered and he said, no, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So he sends out the 150 letters, handwritten note on the sticky note affixed to every one of the letters. Two weeks later, I mm -hmm. called him up and I said, Steve, how's the collections going? And Josh, his exact words were, I'm floored. Wow. Said, Why? And he said, we've gotten money back from 130 of the 150 so far. Wow. And, and the optimist in me said, you mean we didn't get it all back? <laughs> and, and he did what you did. He laughed. He goes, come on, man, we're talking about money. He goes, mm -hmm. I fully expected a lot of people to say, it's your mistake, you fix it. Take it out of next month's commission. Put me on a payment plan. Anything except sit down and write that check in full. He goes, I'm floored. Mm -hmm. When we had lunch um, a few months later, he said that we had collected money in full from 147 of the 150. Now, you got to realize, here's a guy, you know, a super logical, analytical guy who it's just about the money and he's seen the worst in people. So he was blown away by this. Yeah. So much so that when his town had a bond issue for a school levy, and it had failed the time before, and he had two daughters who were still going to school. They sent out 2,000 FAQs, 
frequently asked questions to people mm -hmm. who had not voted in the prior election. And they couldn't actually put a sticky note on, but they superimposed on the uh, FAQ a yellow sticky note. And he personally signed all 2,000. Wow. Because he was that much of a believer that it made a difference. Um, and and this, is, this is a great example of taking the interesting theoretical study and putting it into a tangible business practice that had a huge impact on the bottom line for the company. That's uh, that, that's an amazing story. The fact that they were that receptive and that the response was that good. And then the, the second story is not something that's in the book. So loyal readers, that is something just for you and not for someone who just happens to read the book. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. So for these sticky notes that people use in the future, what advice would you give them as to what they should actually put on it to get a yes? Is it a quick, just like, thanks so much, or is it restating your ask in the letter that you are putting the sticky note on? What What's kind of the thing that they should think? I, well, any anything that's going to draw the person to what they want them to do. Mm -hmm. So it might be, uh, Josh, I really appreciate you giving this your time and attention. Uh, mm -hmm. Josh, really appreciate you helping out with this. But by putting in your name and, and something along the lines of what you want that person to do, read mm -hmm. this, respond to me, something along those lines, that's, I think, the best thing. Not simply, I mean, putting the sticky note and signing it, it's going to still catch people's attention, but right. missing the personalized factor. And that's a part of reciprocity. The more somebody knows that you personalize something to them, mm -hmm. the more apt they are to respond in kind. Gotcha. That makes sense. So then in the book, you go on to remind the loyal readers that small changes can lead to big differences and that often the change costs little to nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, sticky notes are very inexpensive and pens are very inexpensive to be able to do that. Yeah. Now you conclude the section and you do this with each one um, within this, you know, this part of the book uh, by giving advice for the question, how can you influence people? So. From what you learned in this situation, here's the advice that you wrote. So do you still send things through the mail, asking people to do something? You should, even in today's electronic world. And when you do, invest in some sticky notes. Take time to write a short personalized note and you'll see much better results. Mm -hmm. So the next one that we're going to talk about and is... Josh, I will say this too. Okay. I, I, I um, take my own medicine. Whenever mm -hmm. I send a letter, for example, if I send somebody a copy of my book and I'll have a letter and that letter is, um, it might be read essentially the same, but it's always tweaked in some way so that it's personal to the person. But I always include a sticky note either on the letter or I sometimes will put a sticky note sticking out of the book on page 43, just so they'll flip it open. And I say, I, I think you'll really like this story. And if they start with that story, then they're captivated like, wow, that was pretty, now they want to read the book. That's great, that's great, just taking your own advice. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, so the next story that we're gonna talk about is give them reasons to listen to you. And this can be found on page 48. So you write about a story that went viral and it was written about in the Washington Post. And to give this story the justice it deserves, I'm actually gonna read directly from the loyal, from the book. So loyal readers, hold on tight, it's gonna take just a minute. So it starts with a man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for 45 minutes. 
during that time, since it was rush hour, is calculated that 1,100 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. Only six people stopped to stay for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it. No one applauded, nor was there any recognition. The violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most talented musicians in the world. He had just played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the seats average $100. This was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and priorities of people. The outlines were, in a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in an unexpected context? So Brian, can you discuss what happened in this social experiment for the loyal readers and how the principle of authority was not properly utilized or how others did not perceive the principle of authority? Yeah, I, I, I go against what the Washington Post is saying there about how uh, we don't perceive beauty because, uh, you know, to everybody who's listening to this podcast, could you tell the difference between a um, $100,000 violin and a million dollar violin? I don't think you could. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell the difference between a really good violinist and a great violinist? I bet we probably couldn't. We don't have a frame of reference mm -hmm. comparison point, most of us. So I think when people are, are walking by, it's not even in their mind that this guy could be playing a million dollar instrument and maybe he's one of the greatest in the world. But what I would say is if people knew Joshua Bell, one of the greatest violinists in the world, is going to be giving a free concert on a million-dollar Stradivarius in mm -hmm. the subway on this day, people would have packed around and would have probably been late to work just to hear him because now they have a frame of reference. Um, and, and that goes to the heart of this, that sometimes if people don't know about your expertise, they mm -hmm. won't pay attention, even though he is playing that million dollar instrument just as he did on, on the, in the theater uh, days before. Um, somebody who's got a great financial acumen could get up and talk to people and some will listen and some won't. But if somebody said, hey, that's Warren Buffett, he's one of the richest people in the world. But if you knew that was Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world, you'd probably stop and pay attention because you know based on his expertise that what he's telling you might make you rich as well. So that's really my lens and how to come at this. I'll give a personal example too. I was in Arizona many years ago and a good friend that I'd known since, uh, gosh, I think eighth grade uh, from here in Columbus, moved out there and, and he plays acoustic guitar. So a coworker and I went to this little bar and we we're watching him and I strike up a conversation with a, a gentleman sitting next to me. And I said to the guy, I said, you know, I don't know a lot about music, but I know Bill is really, really good. And the guy turns to me and he says, I've heard some of the best acoustic guitar players in the world. This guy's not far behind. I can't believe he's playing this little place. And I told him, I said, well, he loves his life in Arizona. He just enjoys playing, whether there's one people or a hundred people, this is just his thing. Um, but there's a, there's a great example, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about music, but I intuitively knew that he's pretty good, but I never would have guessed he's close to one of the best in the world. Um, oh, wow. 
and I think if more people understood that about my friend, Bill, and his name's Bill Dutcher, um, mm -hmm. there probably would be bigger crowds. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't all have frame of reference for acoustic guitar players. I mean, Josh, how many times have you heard somebody play a 12-string a harp guitar? Probably not very often, right? So you don't yeah. have a comparison point for that. Um, so it's it's incumbent upon us to get our credentials in front of people so that they have a reason to listen. If we wait until the end, they might not have been paying attention. It's critical to get your expertise out early so people will then pay attention. That makes sense. Um, one question, not as part of the book, but for people who are just starting out in business, how do you recommend for them to be able to establish expertise? Is it simply a matter of they need to just kind of give it time for them to be able to establish their expertise or do they need to learn as much as possible in the beginning and then start putting out whether it's you know blog articles or some other form videos things like that how do people who are just starting off establish their expertise okay it's a great question because it impacts so many people every year coming out of college and starting jobs uh, first thing I would say is if you are going to be interacting with other people, you know, maybe you're a salesperson, a consultant, I would have my boss or somebody up the food chain mm -hmm. send an email or a letter in advance of my initial meeting with anybody. Uh, so that letter could go out to you, Josh, and it might say, uh, Josh, you know, um, you know that Bill has been assigned as your rep. You may not know much about Bill. Mm -hmm. Bill graduated near the top of his class from Emory University. One of the things that drew us to Bill was his ability to take technology and apply it. And, and, and anyway, that person is really building up this newbie mm -hmm. uh, so that you are going to pay more attention than you would have if you had never gotten that email. So that's the first thing. And I would always advise somebody to uh, write that email themselves and give it to their boss. Mm -hmm. And again, I take my own medicine. I've got a friend who's making a lot of connections for me at different insurance companies. And I said, Sue, if you want me to write a few paragraphs so that you don't have to spend much time, I'm happy to do that. Because then I know those people will know about what I want them to know about me. Mm -hmm. Now, the next thing, uh, to try to establish yourself as a thought leader, there are things you know, you can start a podcast, you can become a guest on podcasts, you can write a blog, you can do things that you're pushing out into the social media space mm -hmm. that start catching your clients attention. And the more that they start reading and learning from you, the more they'll say, hey, this guy or this lady, they're, they're smart beyond their years, and they will want to pay attention. The other thing is leverage what you are good at. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if you come into the insurance industry, maybe you're not really strong yet on coverages and certain other aspects, but you might be really, really good with technology and your ability to bring that maybe to insurance agents and help them get better, that becomes part of your expertise. And when you show expertise in one area, it tends to give a halo effect where people will start paying attention to other things that you have to say too. Interesting. Um, you, loyal readers, you can't see this because we're on video and you're just listening. But Brian, I was smiling when you were first talking about having um, the the business owner send out an email, which is literally something that I was going to ask you about in just a few moments um, when we talk about uh, meeting with a prospect. So um, I'm glad that we were on the, the same page with the same same exact thought. 
Um, so getting back to the book, you then write about two things that you do and have done in the past to utilize the principle of authority to its full potential. The first is when you're speaking to an audience about authority and you have the person who introduces you read your bio, which includes that you're one of 20 people in the world certified by Robert Cialdini and that your blog is read in over 200 countries. The second is that when you were with State Auto Insurance, you had your boss send a personalized email to the agency owner before you met with them. And you did this to remove the who's the home office guy stigma that comes with it. Right. Now, loyal readers, if you're not in insurance, this is a common thing that insurance agents say. So we refer to the insurance company's corporate office as the home office. So loyal readers, what I want to know from you is the industry that you're in, whether it's accounting, real estate, something else, do you have a phrase like that, that if you know someone isn't in your industry, they wouldn't know what it means? Go ahead and comment on Facebook or send me an email, josh at agency-intelligence.com. Love to hear about those things. So what I'd like to know, Brian, and you kind of uh, already, you already talked about this, is um, the second example when me with the prospect and being able to um, establish that expertise. So my initial thought, like you were saying, was have the salesperson's boss, the agency owner, send an email to the person that they are trying to meet with. Um, so I, I think that I can already answer the, the question of what advice would you give? And, and that's exactly what you would, what you would say, but do you think it would be a good idea for a, a salesperson or producer that is going on a cold call that for them to have the owner of the agency send an email ahead of time to that business owner or to that prospect and say, Hey, you know, uh, I'm having, you know, one of my people stop by, they're an expert in, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, they'll be able to help you in your business. Is that something that you've given advice or that could be helpful to an insurance agent? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the good news is once you've kind of written this, you don't have to tweak it very much for different clients. And so the opening itself may change. So maybe I send an email to you, Josh, and in that email starts off and says, uh, uh, Josh, Sue Gunderlock is going to be stopping by your uh, business in, in the coming days. Um, Sue has worked for our agency now for uh, the last 10 years. And as we were discussing new clients, she talked about your business as being one that she would love to write. And okay, so that's kind of the personalized mm -hmm. to you. And then the rest of it might be, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Sue. She's been with us for 10 years. She's done this, she's done this. And, and that's kind of the brag sheet on Sue. Mm -hmm. So that, first of all, hopefully you feel good, like, hey, they notice me, they want me as a client. Second, this person, Sue, sounds like she really knows what she's doing you're in a better frame of mind to have that conversation with sue now it's no guarantee that everybody will want to meet with sue but i will guarantee you this more people will right. by using that and you will have better more productive conversations by setting sue up as somebody who is an expert um, so again for the listener i don't want you to feel like well i don't have time every time to sit down and write this email no, you get the body of it mm -hmm. and you just tweak that opening paragraph and then you can just knock them out to the right clients and, and you'll end up reaping a reward from that. So loyal readers, let us know if you decide to implement this, uh, whether you're the agency owner doing it for 
your producers or if you're not in insurance and you're in some other sales role, um, you know, as a manager or the owner of, of a business, let us know how it works for you. I'd be very curious to see um, how it would how it will work out for for others. So, yeah. So you conclude the section, this section with answering the how can you influence people question? And here's what you wrote about it. Next time you go to an important meeting or speaking engagement, take advantage of the principle of authority by making sure the audience knows who you are and your credentials beforehand. Do so by having someone introduce you and or send your bio in advance. Establishing expertise up front makes people pay more attention and gives you an opportunity to shine. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him, I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's, let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia. We saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual Intel. That's with two L's. That's virtual I N T E L L dot com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, requiring, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel cast certified. And Josh, I will say, as again, the guy who takes his medicine, mm -hmm. when I did this, mm -hmm. um, I had a friend I'd known for a long time at work, field person, mm -hmm. who was a skeptic. And he told me, he said, you know, you've been out of the field for a long time. Why don't you come back out here and really see what it's like and hear what agents have to say? And I said, fine, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to have one requirement. I want to know every agency that we're going to see. I want to know who those people are and what their email address is because I'm going to have my boss, John, send an email in advance. So they don't wonder, you know, why is the home office guy coming out? So John sends the email. My buddy and I were having some beers the night before. We're going to get ready to travel. And, and he had been joking and telling me, look, you're going to see all that sales stuff that you talk about. That doesn't mean squat out here. <laughs> the, the rubber meets the road with underwriting and pricing, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But the night before, he said, he goes, I, I hate to admit it. But John's email, he goes, John's email was really good. And that's where I said, well, I'll let you in on a secret. I wrote it. <laughs> and, and he said, are you kidding? And I said, no. I said, it's just like being introduced at a public speaking event. I know Brian, and I, want, I know what I want agents to know about me. So I wrote the email. He massaged it, used his verbiage. But, but essentially, it's what I wrote. So we traveled for the week together. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the week, he sent an email to his boss and he said, literally, he said, how many times have you heard somebody say this? I was wrong. He was right. This stuff worked like a charm. And then he went in and he started talking about the stories and how agents responded to me 
just because as soon as I walked in, I was a known quantity. Wow. So is that something that state auto insurance implemented company-wide after that, or do you know? No, um, but but a lot of, and this was the kind of thing that I was teaching our field people, that, you know, you're going to get assigned to a new agency, have your boss Mm -hmm. send that email, but you go ahead and write that. We started getting more proactive about having management uh, craft emails Mm -hmm. when people were going to be assigned to a new agency. Um, So that's really how we were trying to leverage it. I also thought there was an opportunity, even if somebody had had a relationship with you for a long time, if they had maybe gotten a title promotion or earned a designation or something like that, that was a beautiful opportunity for that sales manager to contact those agents and say, Josh, you may not realize this, but Karen recently was promoted to senior level and she earned her CPCU along the way mm. and, and, and basically brag her up. So when you when she walks in your office, you're congratulating her. It starts off on a really, really positive note. That's great. Yeah, I, I really like that. And it's it's definitely something that we'll be instituting in our agency. So the, that way it's yeah less of a, a cold welcome and more of a, a warm greeting when we get to right. the prospects. Well, very good. Now, the third one that we're going to go over is correct ways to respond to thank you. And this can be found on page 52. And you begin this chapter by reminding the loyal readers that small changes can make a big difference and how someone responds to thank you can make a huge difference. And so the story that you write about comes from your rep, uh, mentor, Robert Cialdini, when he spoke at a conference in Australia. And he could tell that there was a man in the audience that was upset. And when he finished speaking, he actually had an opportunity to, to talk with this man. Um, and so the man shared a story about how he owned a software company in Sydney, Australia, and his largest client was in Melbourne, Australia, which is about 700 miles apart. And so the owner decided to go visit the client and took his top two technicians to take care of the issue. And not only were they able to take care of this issue, but they did so rather quickly. And so the IT director of the company was extremely thankful, um, you know, just, you know, gave them huge amounts of praise. Um, As the owner of the company, uh, you know, coming out and taking his two top technicians, she was just floored by it. But the way that the owner responded resulted in them never getting business from this company again. So, Brian, would you mind finish telling the stories and telling the loyal readers what the business owner said in response to this IT director thanking him? And what should the business owner, what should he have said instead? Yeah. So we see this all the time. I'm sure that after hearing this, the listeners, if they pay attention, they're going to hear this phrase way too often. Someone does something, they say thank you, and they hear, no problem. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Hey, I would have done it for anybody. Don't think anything of it. And basically, that's what this guy did. He dismissed the praise from this um, individual. When when she was you know, telling him how much it meant to her, feeling a little uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassed, he tried to play it down. So he said, don't think anything of it. And she went on, no, this is a big deal. You know, you're the owner of the company and you you came out here, you bring your top two people. I can't thank you enough. And and then he heard come out of his mouth. We love to come to Melbourne. Any excuse to come to Melbourne. I mean, we love the nightlife and, you know, we caught a show and he basically made it sound like you were an excuse to come do something fun 
at a place that we enjoy coming to. And it was when he was saying that where he could see that her face fell. And as he looked back, he never understood until he was hearing Cialdini talk that day why they never got any more business after she had been so pleased. It's because he devalued mm -hmm. her, her um, praise and thanks after he had done something. And, and the key here, Josh, is it doesn't matter what it costs me. It's what it means to you. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who, uh, after college, we stayed in touch. And I would call him every month to set up lunch. And one day he thanked me. And I didn't know anything about influence at that time. And he thanked me for always calling every month. And I joked with him. And, and I said, it's not that I'm such a nice guy. I'm really good with my computer. Because I had set up a monthly task. It popped up every month. And then I would call him. And he said, no, but the fact that you actually do it, that means a lot to me. And that's where I had to stop and realize it was effortless after I set up the task. But it meant the world to this guy that every single month. And, and I learned a lesson. Obviously, I haven't forgot that. Now I combine it with what I understand about influence. And I always remember, it's not what it means. It's not what it costs me or how hard it was for me. It's what it means to them. And if it means a lot and they're praising me, I should graciously accept that. Um, when you, you also ask, what should this person have said? There's a myriad of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, if nothing else, hey, we were happy to help. Mm -hmm. um, you could say, um, you know, you're a... a a valued partner and this is what partners do for each other or you could say something like you know you're one of our most important clients we we will always give this kind of service to you you don't really want to say you're our biggest client because you don't want them to think hmm, if i'm not the biggest then i'm not going to get this service but there are uh, a number of things again happy to help you um i'm sure you would have done it for me you're a valued partner you're one of our larger clients uh, all of those are acceptable and I would always say this, too, that I, I told our field people all the time, when somebody thanked them, they should respond with, that's part of the great service you can expect when you deal with me. And if you feel awkward with that, then maybe say, that's part of the great service you can expect when you deal with our company. But if you routinely do that, you will set a marker where great service is associated with you or associated with the company. And that's where subconsciously insurance agents would start picking up the phone and calling that rep first with any opportunity that they had. You don't want to be the third rep that's called because that means the best opportunities have been taken by the top one or two people. Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing that. And you do have some specific examples within the book um, of what that business owner should have said. And so loyal readers, um, I recommend, you know, looking at that within the book, um, the three that were my favorite um, that you had written about, um, the first one was, and you pretty much said all these already, was you're one of our most important clients, so we are happy to do this for you. The second is, that's what long-term partners do for one another. Thank you for trusting us. And I really like the word trust in there. And then the third one is, that's part of the great service you can expect when you deal with us. We appreciate you and your business. Um, and loyal readers, you can't see this again because we're on video and you're just listening to this, but Brian doesn't have the book in front of him. He doesn't have anything up. And the fact that he's so consistent in his message that he can remember what he wrote, you know, two years ago in this book uh, is just a testament to how these principles are something that you can institute within your own career or your own personal life and how 
after years of practice, it will just become second nature for you. Now, for me, this actually hits home because I'm notorious for using the phrase, no worries in my emails back to clients. Uh, and it has probably has a hundred percent to do with my personal personality and my fear of inconvenience, inconveniencing anyone. So I never want to put the burden on them, which is why I really don't like to tell people that what I did was an inconvenience. And I don't know if inconvenience is the right word. Maybe Brian, you can think of a better one, but I don't ever want to be a burden to someone. So I always downplay what I have done so that they don't feel that, you know, I, I did something extra for them, but I need to, again, send you a bill for, for the count, for the psychology session and, uh, send you a check, uh, for that and learn to, to take the praise or, or to take the thanks. You know, I, I also like humor. Um, and so sometimes I would say, and, and I, and I want to, I would do this more with somebody that I know well enough, I was, but it would be, you know, it would have killed an ordinary man, Josh, but you were worth it. You know, and if somebody laughs a little bit, you've got their attention and they're thinking more about it. There's nothing wrong with them thinking that you went out of your way to do something because that shows more value. If it if it was effortless and cost you nothing and they knew that, they wouldn't value it as much. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, you conclude the section with answering the how can you influence people question. And here's what you wrote. When you hear thank you, take the opportunity to engage people in ways that make them feel special. Doing so will also make them feel better about dealing with you. That added satisfaction will keep them coming back and increase the odds they'll share your fame with their friends and business associates. So the fourth one that we'll be talking about is need help to get something done. And this can be found on page 59. And you begin this by writing about a story of when you need needed a report in one week and you need the another report from a coworker to complete that report. And so just saying that somehow reminds me of the movie Office Space. And now I'm wondering where my stapler is at. So getting back to the book, you write that in your experience, most people will send that email or send an email that's kind of straight to the point. It'll say something like this. Harold, I need the quarterly sales numbers with profit by Friday. And there's nothing wrong with that because it's likely to lead or uh, there is something wrong with that because it is likely to lead to failure rather than success. Instead, you need to ask, not tell, which is a common thread throughout this book not, that not only applies in our business life, but also in our personal life. So by asking if your coworker can get you the report, you can employ the principle of consistency. And it's almost like using an upfront close in a way. So you write that the question that should have been posed is, Harold, would you be able to get me the quarterly sales numbers with profit by Friday? So by asking for it on Friday, it doesn't really give you much time to get the information in by Monday, and it doesn't allow you any extra time for Harold to get you the report. So if Harold responds with that he's too busy to get back by Friday, then you basically backed yourself into a corner and you're not going to be able to get it done. So you offer another way to ask the question. And the second is, Harold, would you be able to get me the quarterly sales numbers with profit by Wednesday? And if he responds no, then you'll need to come back immediately with something along the lines of, I understand, Harold, it has never been busy around here. Would you be able to get me the numbers by Thursday? And the studies have shown that when you make a second request, and if you offer a concession immediately to their no answer, then they're very likely to concede to that second request. 
Right. Now, Brian, you write about a third way to ask this question to increase the chances of getting a yes. And it's using my favorite tool from the tool belt that we discussed in episode three, which is using the word because as part of the question. So, Brian, would you mind telling the loyal readers what is the best way to ask Harold this question to get the optimal answer? Yeah. So we move. So we want to move away from telling to asking. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we. Um, create an opportunity for fallback positions in case he says no. And then we want to use the word because and give him a reason. Mm -hmm. And we can also give a reason that, that carries, you know, the weight of authority. Uh, so if, if it's needed for the CEO to complete his part of the board report, there's more authority. So, you know, imagine the difference between saying, Harold, you know, can you get me the sales numbers with profit by Friday? Mm -hmm. you know, telling him uh, versus Harold, would you be able to get me the sales numbers with profit uh, by Tuesday? Because I need them to complete the board report. Um, board report carries weight. Mm -hmm. You've given reason. You've asked instead of told. You've allowed yourself a fallback. If he's like, oh, boy, you know, Tuesday, I don't think I can do it by Tuesday. Hey, I get it. We're busy. Is there any chance you could do it by Wednesday before you leave for work? Um, I don't know. How about Thursday morning? Thursday works. I mean, what I want listeners to think about is the difference between the person who would constantly be the, I need the sales numbers with profit by Friday. That's how they always communicate. Mm -hmm. And the person who's thought about it and always asks instead of tells, they always have fallback positions. They give reasons using because that's the person who by far will get what he or she needs much, much more mm -hmm. than the person who is in that trap because that's what they've always done is just tell people what to do. And this is another example, small change, mm -hmm. cost nothing for any listener to think about this and start employing it as the way they communicate, but they will get big, big results from it. And loyal readers, this is something that you feel that you can use within your own um, life, you know, great. If you have someone who maybe is part of your life that may benefit, you can always share this episode with them and see if they can pick up on it and, uh, uh, you know, be able to change the way. So uh, it's something for you to use and maybe something for someone else in your life to be able to use. So you conclude this one, uh, this section with answering the how can you influence people question. And here's what you wrote. When you need someone to do something, ask. Don't tell to engage consistency. Give them a reason using because and allow yourself a fallback position to leverage reciprocity by way of concessions. These small changes in how you communicate will lead to bigger, better results more often. And so that brings us to the fifth and final one that we'll be discussing, which is for customer service success, under promise, then over deliver. And this can be found on page 71. So you begin this section by writing about something you heard about when listening to the old Mike and Mike show on ESPN radio, which I still miss to this day. Mike Greenberg or Greeny said the phrase under promise, then over deliver, which is something that people in sales and customer service are familiar with. You then write about an example that the loyal readers are all too familiar with, which is when you call a customer service number. So you call the 800 number, the automated message pops up and says to you, your call is very important to us and will be answered in the order in which it was received. Your estimated wait time is two minutes. But then when your wait time ends up being five minutes, you're quite annoyed. However, it's the reverse and it says your estimated wait time is 10 minutes, but the wait time ends up being five, you're quite happy about it. 
The only difference between the two is what you're comparing. You're comparing two minutes to five minutes instead of 10 to five minutes. So Brian, can you give an example to loyal readers of how they can use under promise then over deliver for a personalized insurance agent to be able to wow their customers or to be able to wow their prospects? Well, um, I think one thing when when you are traveling, and I use this all the time, mm-hmm. I, I would always set up my out of office mm-hmm. and so that it was detailed and people knew where I was when I'd be back and things like that. But if you had emailed me, you might've got this message, Josh, that said, uh, hey, thanks for reaching out. Um, to me, unfortunately, I can't respond right away because this week I'm traveling with, with our sales reps. Uh, I'll do my best to get to my email, but it might be Monday before you hear from me. Okay, so I've set this expectation that I'm, I'm out. It's going to probably be Monday before you'll be able to hear from me. Anytime I responded that week while I was traveling, I would get praise. Hey, thanks so much for getting back to me. I know that you're on the road. I didn't expect to hear from you till next week. So I set that bar and then I greatly exceeded it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, an opportunity for any agent. We don't work 24 7 365 now i know some people want to say that i'm always available for my customers um i think that's, in dangerous. Some sense, I think that's dangerous saying that yes because it you, you're not always going to be available and it in a sense can devalue you mm-hmm. because if they feel like oh well, i can just get you anytime i'm going to call you tomorrow night at 10 30 right and now it's imposing on you on a personal level um but when you say hey um, I'm going to be out of town this coming week because I'm going to be on uh, family vacation. It's family time, mm-hmm. and I'm going to devote my time and energy to my family. I have found most people really respect that. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, good for you. We don't need to work 24-7, 365. But the way to also set that up is by sending an email in advance of your being away. So maybe, Josh, for your best customers, the week before you're going to leave on vacation, you send that email that says, hey, beginning next Monday, I'm going to be down in Florida at Disney World with family. We haven't taken a family vacation in quite a while. Um, I, my 100% of my energy and time is going to be focused on my family. That means if you need me, you need to reach me before Friday this week. Mm-hmm. You will have a lot of people responding to that. Hey, Josh, thanks for letting me know you're going to be out of town. Uh, I really need to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And they might, you know, you've created a sense of urgency with the principle of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Now, when you set up your out of office and they get that message, if for some reason it's an emergency and you get back to them, they appreciate that even more because you've set that bar and you've greatly exceeded it. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I'm glad that you talked about that because um, that, that is in the book about the out of office. And so I did have two questions about being out of the office, um, what is your opinion on work-life balance? And the second is, do you think that work-life balance actually exists or is it something that we need to strive for, but at the end of the day, it's truly not achievable? Um, no, I think it's uh, I think it's totally uh, achievable. Mm-hmm. It, work-life balance doesn't mean that every single day it's exactly eight hours and then it's four hours for this, and three hours for that, no, because priorities change. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's having a sense that, that you are the one who's controlling how much time and effort you're going to put forth to work. Um, for me, probably the best business activity that I've ever done in my career 
was after reading Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I sat down and wrote a mission statement. Mm. My mission statement focused on my faith, my family, my personal well-being, and my career in that order. And I concluded the, the statement by saying, I work to live, I don't live to work. I will never sacrifice my faith, my family, or my personal well-being for my career. And, and I say this, Josh, in that I loved what I did, and I worked a lot of hours, and I traveled a lot, but I always knew those other things were more important. Um, there were probably opportunities that I had to say, you know what, in fact, there was. There was a time where I applied for something, and then I stepped back and I said, you know what, I think you're going to require more time for this position than I can devote to it, so I'm going to step away from the, from the interview process. Um, I never felt like, darn it, I should have got that promotion. I should have got because I knew that I was the one making the choices about how much time and effort I would put into work. And when somebody was willing to put more time and effort, God bless them. Yeah. That's, that was their priority. But I, but I always felt like I was able to keep that in balance, yeah. um, that my family was always my priority. I did everything I could. I took late flights to get home if I could do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt like I was the one in control. So for me, that meant the balance. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and, and just a few minutes ago, I meant to to bring this up, um, loyal readers. Brian, uh, when he was talking about being out of the office and putting up that out of office, letting people know, that is him giving you permission to do that. So if you've ever felt the, you know, uh, being unable to do it because no one's ever told you it's okay for you to you know, be unavailable to your clients. Um, you have permission from Brian to be able to do that. So you conclude the section. Oh, well, Josh, let me say this too. Yeah. Easier to ask for forgiveness than it is permission. <laughs> Take the initiative. If, if your, your boss comes back and says, hey, we don't do that here. Okay. Then you don't do that there. But in the absence of that, try it. Yeah, it, you'll be surprised how it works out. So, so you conclude this section uh, with answering the how can you influence people question. And here's what you wrote. Persuasion isn't a magic wand that gets you what you want every time. But you can take charge and set expectations you know you can meet. Then see if you can give more. Under-promising, then over-delivering is a great strategy for customer satisfaction and loyalty. And with that, we've reached the end of today's episode. So thank you, Brian, for joining me for book three, episode four of Influence People, Loyal Readers. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with Brian, please visit his website at influencepeople.biz or connect with him on LinkedIn. Uh, please make sure that you're subscribed to Agency Intelligence Podcast. And if you have 75 seconds to spare today, would you please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform? Because when you do that, others just like yourself will find us and we'll be able to impact more people because of you. If you haven't already purchased Brian's book, then check out the show notes where there's a link to purchase it on Amazon. As a reminder, we are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash explain this book to me. And we'd love if you can like our page so we can connect with you outside of the podcast. If you have a thought or question you'd like to share with me, please email me at josh at agency intelligence.com. And loyal readers, thank you again for downloading the fourth episode of our third book of the Explain This Book to Me podcast, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.